Hello, Joel here. I've got a new book out. It's called Be Funny or Die. How comedy works and why it matters. And it's about how comedy works and why it matters. Why human beings tell jokes and then what that tells us about being human beings. So if you're a human being and you enjoy laughing and then want to know what the hell's going on with that, it's probably a pretty good book to read. It's called Be Funny or Die. It's in shops. You can buy it. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Cheese and pickle. Hello, this is Comfort Blanket. I'm Joel Morris. I'm going to be talking to someone who makes cool stuff that I like about some warm stuff that they like. Uh, A book or a film or a TV show or a record that makes someone feel safe. Uh, Something they return to again and again and never lets them down. So I'll have a natter about it and see if we can work out just what it is about their choice that makes them feel so good and how it does its magic. This time I'm talking to the broadcaster and journalist Samira Ahmed. Samira is a familiar voice and face from radio and TV and presents Radio 4's arts programme, Front Row. And Samira has chosen for her comfort blanket a cookbook. It's a cookbook written by the former Three Degrees singer Sheila Ferguson and it's called Soul Food. don't know at all i wasn't familiar with but it's a brilliant subject for a comfort blanket which is a cookbook what's the comfort of a cookbook (sighs) rather than the actual food so there are a lot of people listening i'm sure who know this you read cookbooks for pleasure you may never cook from them but it's the (laughs) stories they contain the photographs just the idea of what they represent maybe the perfect kind of family celebration that you might never host i actually do collect old cookbooks. I've stopped buying them recently, but I've got ones kind of going back to the 1950s and 60s in particular. I'm quite fascinated by that period of, you know, the feminine mystique. So you're, then, not, you're not taking these things as manuals, as obviously I imagine you do cook from them, but they're not just manuals, they're stories in themselves. Yeah. Although this, the one that I've chosen is a book that I bought to cook from. I still cook from it, but it also is a beautiful story. And it's basically by Sheila Ferguson, one of the three degrees, it's called Soul Food. <laughs> And she grew up in Philadelphia. She married a white Englishman. And the the book is full of photographs of their children on the streets of Philadelphia, her tracing her family, including her slave roots as photographs going back to, you know, the the late 19th century. And what amazes me is this is kind of 30 years before it's now become completely mainstream to celebrate and want to trace, um, you know, black culture and celebrate the richness of that cuisine. I grew up with being very aware of the three degrees as this kind of cultural yeah. presence, 
Prince Charles's favourite band. We've exactly, they were incredibly. Can mainstream. I just say, if the Three Degrees are not performing at the coronation, something <laughs> is wrong. Exactly. You want if there were any surviving goons, they'd be there. Plus the Three Degrees. Yeah. That's who Prince Charles wants. We met at the King's Country Club in Eastbourne, and we were having dinner, and he was across from me, and I thought, well, let me get this fool on stage to dance. It might be a good idea, and so I kind of said jokingly. If one were to ask one to come on to one stage, would one come? I put him on a spot, he couldn't refuse. Oh, really? And he came oh. up and he danced. So she was an American living in Britain, and although yeah. I imagine it was published in the States, and the, the measurements in it are given in... Um, cups. In cups, but also, crucially, they're given in grams and they're given in ounces. So it really works for a British audience. The food is amazing, especially like the, the baking in it. And one of the things that's really striking about this book is the portion sizes because if you look back at a lot of cookbooks from the 70s like early Delia Smith the portion sizes are really small compared to what we're used to eating now and the portion sizes in this are generous Um, and they're much we associate with American sort of abundance that sort of like big eating I just think modern British food if you go to a restaurant you know, you tend to get bigger portions than you used yeah, to in yeah. the seventies. Uh, I have a whole theory about whether that's slightly linked to why obesity is a bigger problem in Britain, yeah, which is yeah. we just eat more. Um, I know some of us are taller <laughs> too, but not me. Um, and I just love the idea that this is a book written by someone who's become a Brit yeah. but wants to share her American heritage with you. I was sort of expecting it to be a cookbook and for the associations to be entirely to do with either that you'd grown up with this cookery or you'd eaten this food, but it's not. There's a lot in it about family history and about identity and things. It tells these amazing stories and it does them through not only the, she has these sort of breakout bits where she talks about family history, the origins of this food in a really sort of, I mean, it's very well written. She's a really good writer. And her voice really comes across. Yeah, you know, she, very clear. she uses things like y'all, but it's completely genuine. And this is, again, decades before it became normal to write a book in a kind of spoken voice. Yeah. It's a very, very conversational book, but there's these occasional breakouts where there'll be a lovely sort of double page spread, as we are used to in cookbooks now, so slightly more lavish. It's a paperback, mm. uh, paperback book from the late 80s. These little breakouts where they've staged a beautiful scene uh, to illustrate something like about the, uh, There's, a, there's a family lunch, which is obviously like after church or or for a kind of big party. And she's got all her relatives, yeah. like her aunts and uncles, have all dressed up in you know evening wear with pearls. And the the table is spread and it's shot in real homes and real gardens. It's very atmospheric and it's very culturally specific. And it's, it really helps understand what she's doing because she is telling through this cooking a story, a story of her and her family and a load of American history that I don't think people would have known. No. So here's an example. So this is with the recipe of black bottom pie. There is a beautiful portrait of this beautiful woman with her hair elegantly up. She's wearing a beautiful blouse and earrings. And it says, my mother, Virginia Cardell Ferguson, one of Grandma Battle's seven children. She worked from her teens to help support the family and never had much time for the domestic events of the kitchen. But when it comes to doing the black bottom or crooning out a tune, my mom has no equal. She used to stand me up on a three-legged stool, put on a napkin coal record and show me how to use my hands gracefully while singing a beautiful ballad. Now, if you think of the yeah. three degrees, you think of Sheila Ferguson with her arms, when will I yeah. see you again? When will I see you again? Also, I have realised, without thinking too much about it, I had, I had started cosplaying as uh, Sheila <laughs> Ferguson in recent years because I often wear polo neck sweaters with a corduroy suit. Has she become Tries an example of how to be? Yeah. Did you? I was, this is. I mean, this is what we have to talk about here. When did you first come across this book? Because obviously, you're a collector of cookbooks, and you like cookbooks. And if you like cooking, but you this like one stuff. started me off. I wasn't was really this your first. Well, almost. So there's, there's a lovely story that goes with it, which is in 1989, I came down from university, and I moved into my own place in London, and my dad helped me, and I was living in Clapham Junction, looking over the railway line, and I had my own kitchen for the first time, and there was 
not one, there were two independent bookshops in Clapham Junction, both like a couple of minutes walk from my house. And I used to just go there all the time. And when this book came out, I saw it in paperback. It was brand new. And I, I just thought, Sheila Ferguson of The Three Degrees has written a cookbook about soul food. It was one of the first cookbooks I bought. And I regularly made the desserts from it in particular. And they were always always amazing. And even things like this lima bean cakes, which is basically butter bean cakes. So there were kind yeah. of things that were sort of vegetarian. And then there were dishes for things that you would never cook, like frog legs. And there's a recipe for squirrel. And she even says, I have never eaten squirrel and I never will. There's a bit where she talks about cooking brains. She says, I'm never going to put, oh, a, I'm never gonna put brains in she my says, mouth. She says, I'm <laughs> never going to eat brains, but it's a- Here's it's, one if you want it. But here's, it's a real traditional thing. So there's, you know, I love that she's really giving some proper history. And then the vegetables are amazing. And of course, now you can probably buy all those things like collard greens. Could you, yeah, could you get this stuff back in the day? Because we should talk about what the food and the ingredients are. It's all basically based on African-American cooking, which has a hugely interesting heritage in that it's based in the very, very meagre rations that were yes. given to plant plantations. Yeah. So the, the ingredients aren't particularly elaborate or highfalutin, but the thing that's interesting about them is stuff's done with them. So it's all, you look at the ingredients and you read these astonishing stories and she talks about what it felt like and what it tastes like and what it means to her and her family. And then the ingredients are like flour, water, salt, pepper. And you go, Wow, you managed no, but, to make a story out yeah, of that. Yeah, but there's much more than that because there's always these things like there's always bacon fat yeah, yeah, or some form of pork for seasoning. And a lot of it is slow cooking, like kind of gumbos and stews and things. Lots of stuff's been done and, to make boring things interesting. And lots of pepper and yeah, flavouring. Yeah. And I had, I don't think at this time I had, been to Jamaica, but I went to Jamaica a couple of years later and there are some overlap in cuisine and this is yeah. like kind of breadfruit and plantains, which kind of particularly plantains, which crops up in both. Um, so I lived quite near Brixton and there were some ingredients that you could source from there, which I quite like. But I, I think I have to be honest, partly because I'm vegetarian. There was a lot in this book that I wasn't going to cook. There's a whole chapter called The Almighty Pig, for example. <laughs> opening couple of chapters which I was expecting to be sort of isolated from the rest of the book it would open up with a description of the history and that wouldn't happen throughout the rest of the book but it opens up with this very detailed very well written history of slavery and rations yeah. and the eating habits of people on plantations and then that infects the rest of the book it carries on she keeps telling that story about the history of this food and why why it means what it means to her and her family and her ancestors it's very organic nothing's cut off it's all one story yeah and it flows really naturally what I love is the book is joyful. So even though she's yeah. talking about slavery and she's never downplaying it, she's always talking about the resilience and the pride and the amazing achievements of this yeah. family. And there's there's a relative, like she had great-grandmother Battle, who's this formidable matriarch really in the family. Name. I know, what a name. Um, <laughs> you know, you have this sense of these powerful women and men, because I think it wasn't her father the cook rather than her mother. There's a lot of times where the father admits, in the story she's telling, the father admits to being able to cook, or the mother says, oh, when I when I met him, he was a great cook and he's never cooked again. As soon as he got married, the wife's done all of it. Or he's sort of gone, yeah, I can cook, which I'll, but I'll leave it to her. there's definitely a couple where it's the other way around. But this one, this is the photo split that got me most, because she traces her family right back to the 19th century. And there's a photograph that says, three of my great, great grandfather, Denison, Harold's daughters, Pearly, Minnie and Jenny, the children from his first marriage to Virginia, a white woman from the North who has never been traced. Um, the little girl in the picture is unknown. And he, apparently this ancestor has destroyed all photographs yes. of his first wife to protect her. There's sort of this mixture of races and influences coming in, which he traces some Native American stuff. There's lots of spices and things from, from Choctaw cooking and things in this that she explains and, and puts into context. And then there's this grandfather who had a, a white wife who he was very sensitive about and tried to protect. I'm mm -hmm. thinking there's all these family stories which come in through the cooking and it's not just a cookbook. Far from it. It's a no. genuine family history. She's got a photograph, which I can't quite believe. She's got a photograph of one of her 
great great grandfathers with his wife Sally, who was not just Native American, but they were married as slaves. Wow. And that she's managed to trace all this part of her heritage and celebrate it in this book. Well, if you read a celebrity autobiography, very often it's indulgent or it's ghost-ridden. It might be a bit dead. Uh, sometimes the celebrity doesn't seem to know what you find interesting about them. You need a really good ghostwriter or to be a really good writer to get a celebrity autobiography to really sing, I think. And it's almost like she's been tricked into writing a terrific autobiography by saying, I'll do cookery. I know. And I know. It's, it's it, a, it, it is a life story. And there's a lovely photograph of her little sister, Linda. And, you know, I love the way she connects the pictures just to the eating. So it says, always just as skinny as a rake, although she could put away... A pile of French toast, a pan full of fresh of fried apples, and a heap of sausage patties, even when she was this size. It's um, brilliant. And she's quite honest about, you know, some of this food, you don't want to be eating this every day. Yes. I mean, it's obviously, this is food designed for people who are burning off a lot of calories. Mm. This is a very, very fat heavy, but very flavoursome because of that, because it's full of what feels like the cheapest possible ingredients to get the maximum flavour. But that's that's savoury stuff. But if you look at the desserts, and there's, I think my favourite spread is, it's like a darkened kitchen, and it's one of her aunts. I think it's her aunt Gracie or someone. And it's a spread of like, there's a deep dish cherry pie, there's a pecan pie, there's an upside down pineapple cake, there's a red devil's food cake, there's a chocolate cake, there's a pile of blueberry muffins. And you, you look at the sizes of those. Yeah. Just you can see from the photographs just how generous the sizing is. These are cakes and pies to feed a crowd. And yes. whenever I've made them... I honestly, you bring it to the table and you have this sense of bringing joy to the table. It's a wow. They're, they're real showstoppers. Yeah. That picture there, and it's, this is an interesting uh, thing, especially for someone from from my generation, my relationship, say, with African-American cooking and African-American figures in television and entertainment. She makes a reference to the the maid in Tom and Jerry very early on. Yeah. And she says, everyone loved that maid. And you went, yeah, because obviously people have, have got a problematic attitude to, to Mammy Two Shoes from Tom and Jerry now. But she says, look at the house she's running in Tom and Jerry and how much we love that house. The yeah. size of the cakes, the cakes that are cooling yeah. on... On a, on, a, on, a, on a window ledge in Tom and Jerry. They're all larger than life where the food is bigger and fatter than you've ever seen as a British yeah. kid. All these photos look like stills from Tom and Jerry, especially that one where you can't see her face. Yeah. It looks like the maid from Tom and Jerry has brought out a big spread and that eventually a mouse and a cat are going to just like skitter through it. It's magical. <laughs> Well, I also love the way that all these relatives have welcomed in this kind of British photography team. Like, we're going yes. to let you into our homes and we're going to share this with you. So there's a sense of generosity. And, you know, going back to the idea of these massive cakes, one of my favourite pictures right near the back, and it's her two daughters. They're sitting on the, the stoop of her kind of, you know, brownstone. And it's as if they've got a yard sale and they're yeah. selling cakes. And there is this cake, which we're now used to seeing in bakeries, you know, these kind yeah. of fancy ones, which is three or four layers. I mean, it's it's nearly a foot high yeah. and iced and covered in kind of coconut bits. And that kind of slab cake, yeah. you, you never saw in Britain at the time. blue icing. Again, it looks like a cartoon. And there's a, there's a fascinating uh, heritage in British culture with that kind of gruel now for a feast cartoon, the things that we have in the Beano, the big piles of sausage and mash that certainly in a Britain that only just got out of austerity was only, it was used to very, very small portion sizes. The size of American yeah. eating that you saw in Scooby-Doo eating great big sandwiches and things. My favourite, a double, triple decker sardine and marshmallow fudge sandwich. That's right through this book. It's got this feeling of sort of abundance and that any occasion where you're going to eat, you're going to eat to the point where you can't stand up. And she talks about that, the fact that it sticks to your ribs. Yeah. The sizes and the quantities are amazing. 
And what's fascinating about it is that when you follow the history of the the origins of all of this are in very, very humble things. Like I suppose, all peasant cuisines eventually become oat cuisine, all Italian food is is peasant food, all French food is originally peasant food. This feels like she starts with this story with people who've got very, very meagre rations. And the only thing they've got is an allowance of pork and pork fat and corn and really simple things that can be given to people who've got absolutely nothing. And then it evolves into these things where these big colour spreads show you enormous abundance and feast and extremely fancy I mean, my mouth dishes. waters every time I open this book. So you know, the, the origin <laughs> of the ingredients is that it's just the starting point. The book is just full of generosity. It's very interesting because it's a very different style of cooking to Indian cooking in many ways. And yeah. my mother is, is you know, um, a cookery book writer and used to do Indian cookery on Pebble Mill at one, before Madhu Jeffrey, if I may point out, and wrote, <laughs> and wrote BBC cookbooks. And a lot of that cooking is to do with, you know, you have very specific spice combinations, yes. stir frying, quite light and quick, getting the temperature right. A lot of the kind of big showpiece family f- sort of feasts and soul food, like, you know, um, jambalaya and stuff and they're big rich stews that are slow cooked yeah. and everything is about relatively simple ingredients although i'd argue the chili peppers is very much like indian cookie you've got to have that heat right. but it's slow cooking to let infuse the flavor of things like the pork or whatever the meat is that's giving it that yeah. flavor um, and so in that sense it's quite different so i found that quite fascinating and if you listen to the chapter titles you know it's so intelligent and thoughtful so you know there's a chapter called the high and mighty breakfast, fine. Down home breads. Then there's a chapter called Grits, Grits, Grits. Which is hilarious. The way it opens, and she talks about grits as a iconic and a staple thing in, in, the, in this cuisine. In soul food, grits are really important. And towards the bottom, she goes, but if you haven't grown up on them, you probably will hate, hate them. them. But here's some recipes. <laughs> no. um, critters that swim. The almighty pig, if you see it, shoot it, which is about things like squirrel and rabbit. And then there's a chapter called Kiss and Cousins, which is just weird things that go together. And the soulful salads. I wanted to say, yeah. you know, a well-flavoured salad. Yeah. And those big American-style salads, like a potato salad or a pasta salad. This is the only book I've ever found which has really got the flavour. Wow. Yeah. As opposed to kind of anemic. So you were cooking from this, maybe. You just left college, so you're, yeah. you're, you're nearly in your first time, and you're cooking from this book. But you're vegetarian, so basically a lot of the dishes in here, especially the ones that immediately made me go, wow, that's how to do fried chicken. Wow, that's what to do with pork. <laughs> you're not going to those ones. No, you're finding I, the salads... Yeah, and the, and the cakes. The stars and the cakes are the key to your way into this. Yeah. I, I put this very, very, very and beans and rice, look. you know, and things like that. Um, I had it, it was it was the year where I was I was doing a postgraduate diploma in journalism, and then I joined the BBC as a news trainee, and I started entertaining and doing little dinner parties. So this is the first cookbook where I kind of felt I was experimenting with you know things that I wasn't hundred percent. I hadn't grown up in that cuisine. I, mean, wow. I grew up with Indian cooking. Even to this day, there's a part of me that thought there's no point trying to compete with my mother on cooking. I mean, I still go around to my mum's for dinner <laughs> on the Sunday night and she's doing a, a pre-Christmas uh, dinner on the 23rd because on Christmas Day, we're going to my sister's. And I've explained to my mother and I do it every year. I said, you're not doing a traditional Christmas lunch because me and my sister do that much better. Yeah. You are going to do us Indian food because it's bloody amazing and, and everyone loves it. Yes. You know, <laughs> so it's sort of, I, so I never tried to compete with that. So maybe to some extent I was looking elsewhere for things to try and I'm, find, I'm a really good baker yeah to find sort of something you, that, that wouldn't be because there is a competition certainly between parents and children about cooking I mean it can get very argumentative over the Christmas dinner who does it and things the sense of sort of going that the parents go the kitchen is my domain I, yeah. I provide here and you can sometimes feel like you're challenging them as a child and the best thing to do is to find things you can cook and keep it well, well away especially you know she'll always I mean I will never cook things as well as her Indian wise although I'm pretty good I'd say yeah. a certain number of dishes and the other thing I got into in a way because the other book I nearly chose was 
um, Rose Elliott's Vegetarian Dishes of the World, which I still use a lot, and it's, yeah. which is simple in a different way. It's that kind of very old-fashioned English vegetarianism, but it still holds up. And so I was, I, I was just finding my voice, if you know what I mean, in terms so of you're, cooking. You're grabbing things from. I got you're doing what anyone does with food. You're grabbing different cuisines and making them work. But this wasn't something you associated with comfort from childhood. Well, it was in that I'd gone to the states a lot as a child, and my parents first took me in 1976, a bicentennial right. year, and I remember having. I mean, in those days, it's a late meat. I mean, there's like steak and salad, a really good steak, a really amazing potato salad. So I had that memory of real American food and how amazing and rich it was. And as I say, going to Brixton, you could get some really good ingredients. And later on, you know, after yeah. I went to Jamaica, and oh my God, the food is amazing. I, you know, I would, I would cook you know, salt fish and ackee. And I found a good Jamaican baker around the corner where you could get bun loaf and have bun and cheese. And so, But you're you know, grabbing things from all over. I think what's yeah. interesting about this, this is very much someone saying um, that she's come away from where she grew up to somewhere where this food isn't available for reasons of just culture and, and, and what ingredients are there. And she's doing her best and she's trying to bring it with her and trying to show the people in her adopted country the food yeah. Of, of, her, of her family and her ancestors. There's a big resonance here and it's all about family, all about culture and all about familiarity. But you're saying you're getting huge comfort from this and it is nothing to do with your upbringing. And yeah. yet you think from what she's saying that it would all be to do with familiarity because the comfort of it is a bit like uh, you want to be eating the things that remind you of childhood. But you're saying your childhood was a grab bag of influences so you can get comfort from anywhere. Well, I think you just recognise someone who's coming from a place of family. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I think I... Recognise that. I love that I didn't know the side of her. I'd, you know, growing up watching her as a kind of pop star. And of course, there's an, a particular glamour about Americans who made Britain their adopted home in the oh, 1970s. We them, didn't we? <laughs> I remember meeting Sparks a couple of years ago and thinking, how, what were you doing in Britain in the 1970s during the three-day week? Like, we love you for that. Who could not love Americans who made Britain their home? Yes, especially when you lived through that awful sort of cabbage and rain period of the 70s. Yeah, although I have to say, I have a real fondness for school dinners, like, because that was quite exotic to me. I loved bananas and custard. Well, that's, I was thinking about this because my, my thing with this, I was, I was reading this and thinking, I was really interested that you chosen this rather than maybe, say, one of your mum's cookbooks or something that was totally associated with childhood. And I was thinking the closest I could get to this in terms of like, where's the cooking of my culture? And it's Nigel Slater's Toast, oh. which I remember loving as a book because it kind of went, do you know the disappointing thing about being English is that supermarket loaf in a toaster actually does make you feel okay. And bananas and custard makes you feel okay. And actually, sometimes you want tinned tomato soup or Angel Delight. And I love the fact that it said it was nothing to do with the quality of the food. It was all through the associations and the sense of being looked after that you'd have when your mum would yeah. give you some food in your lap. So the third book I'd, I'd have picked would have been Nigel Slater's Real Fast Food, which... I remember buying around the time I first got married and we moved into our first flat together and it was full of like, you know, quite simple ideas, but beautifully put together. Yeah. And there's something about when you find a cookbook that fits with you, it's like they're in the kitchen with you. So I felt I was in the Maybe. kitchen with Sheila Ferguson or Nigel Slater was this somehow in the kitchen with me while I was cooking and I knew him. Like yeah. I'd spent more time with him in the kitchen than most other men. Yeah. <laughs> I've never met him in my life. And I think Sheila Ferguson, the voice in this book, and when you're cooking the recipe of someone that you've got to know them through their book they're in your home in a way that you don't necessarily stop and realize it's yeah. like everybody spends for themselves i open the fridge i say this is that 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 here's what that is and let everybody go for themselves i mean that's an amazing thing about how 
the voice is important. Yeah. You have to feel that someone is talking to you. What you want is someone to be like your magical assistant. And the voice of someone, when you trust them or they're very characterful, means that you feel that person's there. And I think with something with celebrity chefs or celebrities who cook, the fact that you can hear their voice and you sort of think, well, I sort of wouldn't trust you if this was written in RP. If this was written, it wasn't in your voice. I need to feel I'm in the kitchen with you and you're over my shoulder because you've told me that's how you learn these recipes of people just talking to you. There's an oral tradition yeah. in cookbooks. I'm amazed that this isn't still in print because it's such a beautifully told story. You know, it's the first of its kind and it's, it holds up some recipe books. You know, they do date for various reasons to do with portion size or, or some of the ingredients. But this is as fresh today as when it was published in 1989. 30, 40 years ago was a very, very different time. I'm a very lazy cook. I don't use cookbooks. I cook about 10 things I know to cook. I'm good at them, but they're kind of, it's weirdly, it's the way she describes it about, so I'm someone who just weighs things in their hand and just throws them in. The funny thing about this book is it, it does unlock a bunch of cooking techniques that have been inspired by people just bodging it, feeling their way into it. And that's incredibly encouraging, especially at a time when MasterChef on television was very technical and it was all yeah. about precision and that sort of very, very pretty Lloyd Grossman voice that was about sort of, it had to be absolutely perfect. Well, the, the kind of thing, they, and, the uh, thing they sort of satirise in Ratatouille, the yeah. idea it has to be sort of haute cuisine. This feels very earthy and felt and like a bunch of recipes people have kind of worked out for themselves. That big thing about a recipe that's been repeatedly cooked in a family for a few generations. Yes. So they've got it just right. And it's giant portions. And, you know, I tend to only really cook now for big family occasions like right. birthdays and Christmas. And I did, I, I did Christmas lunch for 14 years in a row for at least, you know, a dozen, 14 people. Wow. So I can do Christmas lunch without any problem. Um, but what I like doing is doing big things like a big thing of pasta bake. Yeah, or, yeah. The fetishization of the feast, the size of these things. There's something about the, the way this is told. And it is told. It's not just written. It is a story being told about a family. Uh, and it's done through the layout of the book. The fact that the family photographs aren't just at the beginning. They're scattered throughout. Yeah. And you get to know through that, a cast of characters. So it's got a novelistic or a autobiographical element that you don't read in many cookbooks that I, that I associate with people like Nigel Slater who use cooking as a way of telling life stories. Yeah. It's brilliant. And look, there's this lovely photograph of her dad and his best childhood buddy dressed in these amazing double-breasted suits with so smart. hats. You know, they kind of look like um, they're out in the 1940s, just well, these beautiful studio portraits. Yes, because it's all, I mean, they're all staged photos of people who have got maybe one photograph of themselves or two photographs. They've gone for a special well, photo, photo sitting. Yeah. But also, again, just in a little little introduction to a recipe, you get an insight into like a whole way of life. So spice sheet cake. In my mind, sheet cakes go with social gatherings like church suppers, which inevitably last all day long down south, baby or bridal showers or children's theme parties. But they're also fine any old time, especially when you want to begin Monday with something sweet to pick on all week long. The words are really well weighed. Yeah. Um, they're really simple. It's not uh, show-offy. She's speaking and she's writing very confidently in the way that she would speak. But she's presenting something. It's lifestyle writing. It's saying you can aspire not only to this food, but to this feeling of family, this feeling of warmth, this feeling of companionship and long-lived associations. It's very I mean, it's incredibly well put together. And while it's very funny, like, I just found the description for Angel Food Cake. While reading Maya Angelou's gripping autobiographical series, I came across a remark that jolted me back to a tender reminiscence of my own childhood. She wrote that one could always tell when there'd been a death. 
because somebody would be in the kitchen baking in the middle of the day, and that's so true. And then she writes about the yeah. habit dating back to African tribal customs, about you know giving gifts, and perhaps this natural, this is her opinion, perhaps this natural sweetening helps to soften the emotional turmoil at a time of mourning. Angel food cakes are a particular favourites for post-funeral feasting. There's you a know. lovely book um, Katie Wicks uh, wrote recently called Delicacy, which I'd recommend to anyone who likes uh, good writing. Uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful book. Katie Wicks is in Ghosts and Things. And she wrote a beautiful book called Delicacy. And it was, it was about her observation that when anything sad happened, cake appeared in her family. So she associates cakes with sadness. And it's all written like that. And it's yeah. a beautiful observation that sometimes the time when the most cooking is done is when people are cushioning an emotional blow. Mm. And this is a book that starts off by describing people trying to find joy in slavery. Um, it's incredibly raw and yet really comforting. Yeah, and that cover is her sort of sitting as if she's in a recording studio. <laughs> yes. There's a microphone and some musicians, but she's somehow got a giant spread of soul food. No one's and she's sitting there with a song sheet. It's so heavy. I know. It's like, hang on a minute, you're crowding out the studio with this amazing food. Uh, but she looks so beautiful. And I'm guessing, she'd been in her early 40s maybe when she wrote this. She's born 1947. This is actually now. So yes, she's 41, 42. So this yeah. is her midlife crisis cookbook. <laughs> and she looks so fabulous. Because um, she's just left three degrees a few years earlier. So this is her striking out on her own. This is her finding her identity. Maybe she's done a lot of family history or soul, ser- soul searching uh, around this time. I'm not a good mother. Oh, <laughs> Girls, we'll up, catch up with you on the road. Love or otherwise, we'll see you around. Okay. Thanks Thank for coming you. in. Thank Bye-bye. You. That was quick, Trevor. <laughs> <laughs> My goodness. When you wrap it up, you're supposed to give us a, a, a minute to get it wrapped up. All of a sudden, well, we'll see you on the road, girls. Bye. Get out of the studio. Come on. <laughs> I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Subtitle is classic cuisine from the Deep South because her family came from the Deep South. So, you know, moving to Philadelphia, she's going back to her roots yes. in the South, which is such an interesting story. We know it's a big part of the African American story. There were many families who emigrated north yeah. and left behind on the social attitudes. Well, she, describe, she describes that in the, the intro. There's a really good, solid bit. She's done proper research. The family history is great. The cultural history is really, really interesting. And, and I don't know how many people in the British public arena were telling those stories at that time. I don't think there were many. Yeah. And I bought other books, you know, of, of, of soul food, but this one is, this one is special. This is really special. You know, as I associate it with the start of my adult life, um, I associate it with making food for 
celebration and just amazing flavors and generous portions and you know the apple pie is still the apple pie i'll make for my children i'll probably make one this christmas if you're saying oh, when i tick them off in my copy i will have ticked off every time i made a recipe for the first time <laughs> and put the date and i may have put you know if it was made for something special like a special occasion so i was thinking about this book as a book about the comforts of the food you grew up with and for, for her it is she's telling the story of her life her family and going backwards for you this is a story for you of the journey you've made in your life since you got this book, because you've got oh. it with the ticks in. So I made that, I made that, I made that. Oddly, this is now tracking your life as an adult, and it's it's come with you on that journey. Yeah, yeah. and you know, I, I think I did this book with being 21, 22, and starting up my adult life. So it's me as a single woman, um, finding my identity, yeah. entertaining other people, and you know, exploring other cultures, which I loved. I mean, I really fell in love with American popular culture in 1976. I was eight years old. I discovered comics. I discovered Wonder Woman. And, and those influences have stayed with me my whole life. And so discovering this book was a way of delving deeper into the, the wider part of American culture and African-American culture. So that's something that you've adopted. And this is, again, you talked about your associating your, your mum very strongly with sort of her cuisine and her culture. Mm. And you've sort of said, that's hers. As in, when we do Christmas dinner, that's mine. When you do Indian cooking, that's yours. This is obviously really important to you as something which you chose and you owned yeah. in a way that she's looking backwards and saying, I want to reclaim my past. You're saying for you, this is a book that said, I've got a whole big future. I can go and take whatever I want. Yeah. And yeah. so you're associating it with... I'm a citizen of the world. Yeah, you're going to travel. You're going to find your own thing. Your identity as an adult is tied up with this book. So do you then pass that on? So I have done a version of what my mother did for me. My mother started buying up saris and jewellery to make me a trousseau, thinking I would have a traditional marriage. <laughs> Never quite worked out that way. But I have got a kind of trousseau for both of my children. I have a son and a daughter. And I, I've bought cookbooks, duplicate copies of cookbooks that I want them to have. And I've also bought a certain, like there's this amazing Paul Revere cookware that's been discontinued that lasts forever that I bought in America and I've kept for when they get their own places when they finish university and stuff. So I have got copies of Soul Food them. And I and I won't lend my copy to other people because it's too precious. I bought them copies of that. I bought them copies of Nigel Slater, Real Fast Food. And there is a Nigella Lawson um, a book that I bought them as well, because there's a lot of recipes from that that I used to cook when they were little. Um, so yeah, I've got a shelf at home, which is just full of things that I'm going to give them when they make their first home. And that's and in that trousseau, in that 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 a collection of things, which is a grab bag from loads of different cultures, including the culture of Nigella Lawson, a very yes. exotic culture, very precious to, <laughs> to these islands. Um, that's you. That's not your family. That's not something that you brought with you. You found that yourself and you want to pass that on. It's almost like you're making your own grab bag of but cultures. But everyone knows that, that thing about you. You ring up your mum to say, mum, can you give me the recipe for that thing? So my daughter yeah. WhatsApped me the other day. She was doing a Christmas lunch with her student friends at the end of term to say, mum, can you send me the recipe for Borzan chicken? I didn't even realise that Borzan chicken is a real French thing, but it's like a real French comfort thing. I love Borzan. I grew up with it in the 70s. Yep. You basically stuff a whole one inside the chicken. You rub <laughs> another one on the outside with some oil and that's essentially Borzan chicken. Um, you stick it in the oven. But I love that she she has these associations of yes. things that I've done with her, taught her. So I, that's an amazing thing because what you've done, you've become someone who can then pass that on. You become one of the characters from Sheila Ferguson's book. There'll be a well-thumbed photograph of you in your daughter's cookbook saying, this was passed on to me by... And you become we all get woven into each other's stories. My, but it does get a bit diluted in terms of richness. So you mentioned Angel Delight. One of my, my signature dessert 
Oh. It's from the Magic Roundabout cookbook that I was given as a birthday present when I was seven. I talk a lot about this. And it's it's um, it's a dessert which is two different flavours of Angel Delight and in layers with slices of banana and then you sprinkle some grated chocolate on the top and you do it in a nice like Sunday glass. That not only sounds sensational, but sounds like something I could definitely make. That sounds within my and limitations. And like, I used to make this as a dinner party dessert when I was a student at Amazing. university. I bet that went down really well. It I, did actually. And yeah. this was before Angel Delight became retro trendy again. I don't think. I think Angel Delight is just a staple. It needs to be in the cupboard. It's basic, isn't it? It's I like don't salt. understand my people are snooty about Angel Delight. I will always have Angel Delight in my cupboard. It's a modern miracle. Still, when it's time to start enjoying Angel Delight, there's no problem about that at all. It's essentially cornflour, isn't it? Is that what it is? Yeah, it's cornflour. Almost everything in salt food is basically cornflour. So if you've never made cornbread, the cornbread recipe in this, because there's something about It looks really simple. It looks incredibly simple. Basically, it's like, you know, like like soda bread is made with baking powder rather than yeast. So cornbread is like a baked cake. It just looks like a cake. And it's even sweet because there's a touch of sugar in it. But you have it like a slab of it with soup. Yeah. And it's the way that Americans will do things like, they call them biscuits, but they'll have scones. She talks about that. She says, I'm not going to do anything with yeast. And the excuse she gives, which is beautiful, is that there's a really, really good bakery near where her family live, and you might as well go there. Yeah. It's a brilliant way of saying sometimes you just have to go to the shop. And I love that. There was a, there's a lovely moment. That I think Jamie Oliver did that once. He said, oh, I don't know why I'm making tomato soup. The one on the tin's really nice. Yeah. And I love the admission that sometimes you get an expert in. And so baking bread's quite hard and she is not interested in it. She will just teach you the cornbread recipes. Oh, cornbread is amazing. And it's, it opens up a, a whole uh, area of cuisine that I don't know, yeah. rather than her just relentlessly teaching me how to make different sorts of bread. The ingredients that are being used, the ingredients that are being chosen are things that were available at the time. The there's history three, is really, really clear. Isn't there's it? three ingredients that are kind of, I think they had a sort of semi-sacred status in a lot of Native American culture, which is corn, tomatoes, and I think squash, someone's going to correct me, mm. but they were often grown together right. and they had a kind of symbiotic relationship in how you planted them and harvested them. But there's this amazing trio that go in a lot of Native American cooking. And that's fed into this, this sort of the soul food cuisine, which is, a, which is basically, again, it's inspired. It comes from, from slave rations. What can you do with what's available, what you were given? And the answer is work really hard to make it as delicious as possible. In telling you the recipe, she tells you the story and the associations and the family history behind it. And you go, some of this must be how this tastes. And some of it must be the story that you remember this. You're so fond of it. I think a lot of it is how it tastes. I think a lot of it is the technique, especially things that are deep fried or slow cooked and allowed. The flavours are allowed to so sort of... adding value in yeah. terms of just the effort that's gone There's into it. There's technique to it. It's just it, it, a lot of the technique is about patience and a lot of it's about repetition. So the comparison I'd give is making a good chapati from scratch. You just got to do it repeatedly until it becomes an instinct. If you ever watch an experienced yeah. cook like my mum, just rolling out chapatis and making them, they'll always be soft. They'll always be perfectly puffed up. You know, they'll taste really tender. And yes, it's just flour and water with a bit of salt, but it's all about the technique over time. And I think that's what you can't underestimate about this. There is a real sense of time in this. It's, it's, I'm hearing a chef who said, what's the question you most get asked? I'm just a, a restaurant chef. And she said, oh, the question I get most asked is, why does restaurant food taste better than the food I make at home? She said, it's how long you do the onions. So everyone mm. when they do a recipe, it says, do the onions for two minutes, three minutes. Said, Never do onions for two minutes. Yeah. Do them for between 10 and 15 minutes. I said, the reason that everything tastes good in a restaurant is we just spend longer. And I love the idea that modern culture and modern cooking is all about fast food and speed and think what you have to do is have some time. And this is definitely a recipe book where the secret ingredient is always time and care. Care, I know. 
You know, I cooked in a professional restaurant once, and it's one of the best experiences of my life. So I did MasterChef, Celebrity MasterChef, very low-ranking celebrity. (laughs) One of the challenges was we cooked in a restaurant opposite the Almeida Theatre in North London. And it was run by this amazing young Scottish chef. And I was doing the fish counter. And I still make that recipe. And, you know, it was just, honestly, it was like being a rock star in a band on stage. (laughs) It was so exciting. But... Basically, you pan-fried the salmon and you cooked it in in butter, but you scooped the lemon juice over it so it caramelised. And you served it on a watercress um, velouté. So it's kind of like a pureed watercress soup that had been pre-made and you'd you'd heat it to keep it warm and then put a spoonful of that, then put your cooked fish on top. And then you sprinkled it with um, some cooked pasta that you just warmed up. And then you put some more lemon juice and a bit of decoration. And I just remember serving it up and just thinking, although it was relatively fast, all this care had gone into getting all the components right. So the process of dishing it up at speed in a restaurant was fine, but that velouté would have been made in advance. The pasta was prepared in advance. And one of the best things was one of the customers sent the fish back and said it was under cooked and the chef looked at it because I was taught how to test it with the skewer and the thing is you need to be just cooked you don't want it overcooked yeah. and the, he put his skewer and he said she's cooked it fine but if he wants it overdone that's fine we'll do that we didn't put that in the edit because you don't want to insult yeah, the yeah. customer but I loved that I had got it right if she wants it what's, what's the well, he I, wants it yeah. Andy Baldwin said that the, the phrase is kill it yeah well if, if someone asked their state well done they would just say kill it because it means that the person they were serving up to uh, had had no taste buds or uh, dessert. <laughs> well, also with salmon, you know, if it's still pink inside, you might think, oh, it's not properly cooked through. Yeah. You know, it's like that. Yeah. It's still reddish. But actually, it's just done at that point. So if you're very nice to me, and there's not too many of you, because I don't think I did more than four at a time, <laughs> I can do you this pan-fried salmon with um, watercress velouté. And it is... It's probably the dish that I would make for a special occasion for one other person. You've learned that to professional grade. I did. And not just that, I got burns and everything on my wrists. And, you know, the thing about professional chefs is they've all got scars and (laughs) tattoos. And even in just one day, I remember because I was the only woman in the kitchen. It's a very male-dominated profession. And I was just, honestly, I still loved it so much. And I remember at the end, they filmed your reaction and they said, how was it? And I said, it was brilliant. It was like, Jim will fix it without the (laughs) paedophiles. For some reason, they didn't keep that in the final edit. Oh, it's terrible. They, got, they don't know that's dynamite television. <laughs> people sometimes bring on books, and sometimes people push the definition of what a book is. I love Paul Litchfield bringing on the Dungeons & Dragons Player's Handbook. It's a book, but it has resonances beyond it just being a book that you read. Um, and I love the idea of bringing a cookbook on. Because the relationship between cookbooks and books is really interesting because they sit on a shelf. I've got a shelf of them. I don't really use cookbooks that much. The internet's destroyed it for me. But I still have an association with the cookbooks I've got that I love them being there. I love owning them as books. And your love of cookbooks, is it to do with your love of books generally? Yeah, I think partly. Um, And I, you know, I do have a whole load of them in the kitchen and when I come home in the evening, especially like from a late afternoon front row, I'll often sit down if I'm having something to eat and I'll just get a random cookbook off the shelf and just read it. Wow. You know, while eating something else. Yeah, while eating something like I have the Claudia Rodin, you know, a book of Middle Eastern cookery. I'll just read that while I'm eating eggs on toast, you know. That's like synesthesia. It's like <laughs> mixing the two experiences. Um, Does it taste different if you're reading about a different dish? Can you put another flavour into your head? Sometimes I think I'm gathering ideas for what I might cook right. um, down the line. But sometimes it's just, it's travel. I think I read cookbooks like people might travel travel or read a travel documentary. This is very, very clear with this book that you are reading this for the same reason as you would read any vivid memoir of someone else's family. 
that you can go and be the whole point of fiction that people say is to enter someone else's yeah. mind to see the world through someone else's eyes and i definitely felt reading this within seconds i'm not particularly a big three degrees fan or anything but i immediately went i'm interested in this woman and i'm seeing the world through her eyes i understand her her family her culture her values i felt like i was reading a really vivid memoir or a really vivid piece of fiction about a culture i don't share and that my life had been enriched yeah, totally. And expanded yeah. as a result. Through yeah, empathy, yeah. through the, the thing that writing can do, which is to put you in someone else's shoes. And I know that, I mean, I've gone through periods in my life, until relatively recently, I went through a period of a couple of years when my children left university where I, I, I often say it's like a sw- switch went off in my head and I stopped all cooking pretty much. I lost all interest in food. Right. Um, I think it's like 20 years of kind of cooking for a family on top yeah. of work. You know, it just... I don't need to do this anymore. I, I saw it as something very functional. And also I was swimming a huge amount, so I didn't really have much time to think about food. And that light's gone back on a bit. But there's something about books as just part of people's stories. So when I read Simone de Beauvoir's um, memoir, she's written this amazing autobiography. And in the one, I think it's Prime of Life. It's when she's writing about um, the war and her relationship with Jean-Paul Sartre. And there's an amazing thing where she talks about cooking for him. And, you know, you can you know Simone de Beauvoir was not that interested in cooking. Um, but she describes like, her anxiety at like, like trying to make something nice for him. And she gets sent some meat from a relative in the country and it arrives kind of semi-rotting. Amazing, it arrived at all. So she scrapes off all the horrible bits. She cooks it. It looks pretty awful. So she says, oh, I found a tin of mushroom soup and I poured that over the top and she presents it to Jean-Paul. And I love the idea that this amazing existentialist philosopher had the same anxieties as the rest of us about trying to make something nice for the man she loves. Is it the universality of it? Is it that something you can tell the difference between people and tell the difference between cultures by looking how they do the same thing. And we all eat yeah. and we all cook to a certain degree or have people cook for us if we're small children. And seeing how a common experience, tea time, is for different people tells you who they are. In the same way as the slight differences in music, the slightly differences in it make you go, oh, that's how those people see the same thing or feel about the same thing. There's something incredibly useful with well, it being a universal experience. And it's also about, I mean, we know, you know the idea of appetites, different kinds of appetites are linked. And I remember an American friend telling me that they came on, I guess it wasn't a language exchange, but they came on some kind of school trip where they stayed with an English family. Yeah. This would have been in the late 80s. And they were just horrified by the very, very dull food they were presented with. I mean, I love a good fish finger, but I think it was, you know, kind of really horrible piece of meat plus yeah. some frozen peas that had been cooked. She was horrified by our fish fingers when she comes to Britain. She goes, can't believe what the nanny is serving up for her kids, which is why she says she got engaged with the soul food. She wanted to give her kids the big flavours again. Yeah. She's horrified by what she calls fish sticks and French fries. I know. <laughs> I have to say a good fish finger is a great thing and a good fish finger sandwich is a great thing. Totally. But that's my soul food. That's from my culture, my rich culture you of fish fingers. You should About like, just you know. the rich soul food. No, I just later did it. But the associations you have with those things, what helps with these cookbooks is you're looking at the way different people and different cultures treat the same thing, which is just eating and cooking because we all share that yeah and the same way as you can tell the difference between cultures by their art my son once wrote it in school essay it's like in what do you love about your mum and he wrote amongst other things he wrote well she's on tv <laughs> he just wrote that because he thought she would then he wrote she makes really good cakes which oh but i make an amazing steamed syrup sponge and I grew up reading about them in books, you know, in children's books. I thought, yeah, oh, yeah. what is this? It's a very Enid Blyton, very yeah. sort of school And then school I made one from my Rose Elliott Vegetarian Dishes of the World book or something. And oh my God, I love that Vegetarian Dishes is like 
or puddings. Yeah, yeah. All English puddings <laughs> count as vegetarian cuisine. And so I can do you any kind of traditional English pudding. I also do an amazing Yorkshire pudding. I taught myself to do that. Actually, culturally, we do ace puddings. We're good at puddings. Is that how culture? And also, I contribute to the world is just cake. And also, well, also basically, <laughs> you know, that kind of pancake batter, because pancake batter is pancakes, it's Yorkshire pudding, it's quite a lot of things. Yeah, yeah. And the thing about Yorkshire pudding is it does taste amazing cold. I think I was in my 20s. No, I was in my 30s before I first tried making Yorkshire pudding. And I do amazing roast dinners with a traditional pudding. Apparently, you can have Yorkshire pudding as a pudding with pouring golden syrup and cream on it. Yeah, I've heard it. Have you done that? a cake, yeah. I've, I've tried it with some jam. It's fine with jam. Oh, is that nice? Yeah, I it's good. cold. Yes, I mean. I can't get over how Yorkshire pudding is almost better cold. Yorkshire Obviously, I'm already looking forward to it, Boxing Day because I make bubble and squeak. Yeah. Actually, I tell you what, if you want to talk about English cuisine, we're just good at leftovers. Yes. Everything we make is better the next day. Oh, and also rhubarb. So my personal obsession <laughs> is rhubarb. And I, I, I planted a new bit of garden um, this year and I said, I want rhubarb in it. What would it look like if you presented this, if you did a soul food with, with sort of the nice things you associate with sort of uh, English school dinners? And the answer is you can transform anything yeah. through saying, do you want to understand me, my family, where I come from through our food? And you're doing that act of writing and transformation and imagination and empathy by saying, through my eyes, this is my happy place. This is my comfort food. This is the things that made me. And they might be fish fingers or tin soup, but if they're yours, then they belong to you. And you can let other people in through that. There's also one thing I realised, which the whole conversation is leading to, which is how many of these great ideas, including soul food, are the results of hybrid kind of cuisines sometimes yes. it's because there's a terrible traumatic history of you know why african-american cuisine yeah. even had to develop but equally now you know it does exist you look at the influences in it and i remember there's a recipe i clipped from the telegraph years ago by judith jacobs who who was carmel in eastenders amazing yeah. um actress and i think she has jamaican heritage but the recipe was for um a macaroni cheese it's obviously a kind of caribbean infected one which involved Lots of cheddar cheese, lots of mustard and lots of pesto and smoked salmon pieces. And you stir it all up together. So it's like a cheesy sauce. And it is my daughter's favourite dish. And I've been making it from this newspaper cutting. And I thought that cutting comes from about 1989, 1990 (laughs) as well. And it's the dish that I will make for her birthday party. And it's the dish she asked me to make for Christmas. You know, we'll make it on Christmas Eve or something. And that recipe is obviously a family recipe of Judith Jacobs, who's got, you know, it's amazing Caribbean heritage. The pasta side of it. And there's a whole tradition of kind of macaroni cheese, isn't there, in yeah. kind of American and yeah. Caribbean cuisine. But like it's personalised with these really lovely, rich flavours. And I think it's that's the thing. It's pulled influences from all it's over. It's much more flavourful than, dare I say it, the English version. Well, that usually is, isn't it? I, I know. That's I the key. They imported flavour in in the 70s. We didn't have it before. It was introduced like the grey squirrel and it slowly killed bland English cooking. I love that when you read the Asterix in Britain book where he just <laughs> talks about how nothing tastes of anything in Britain because everything's boiled. And you go, well, that's what the cuisine was like in the 60s. It got better. Uh, the Again, uh, there were traumas. There were there were influxes of people, refugees, things who brought in astonishing dishes that we now assume are ours. And they're not. Can they're, I tell you a restaurant story? So go on. in the 1970s, so my father's business was supplying Indian and Chinese restaurants with catering supplies because no one was specialising in them and there was a a big growth in them. So all the Indian and Chinese restaurants and some um, non-ethnic restaurants too, you'd supply them the crockery and plates and everything. And there was a restaurant near where we lived in Tooting called Sri Krishna and it's South Indian speciality. So kind of Idli, Sambar, Dosa. And we'd go there for Sunday lunch a lot. I remember once walking in, all these white people looked up and the whole family had arrived. must be good then. <laughs> and, and we sat down and I remember because there were these two elderly ladies who walked in, light hinge and bracket, but actual ladies. 
and they sat down and I thought, oh, bless, you know, they're like, you know, yeah. this, they would have been probably bored about 1900. They looked about like, you know, 70. And and they looked at the menu nervously and there was two English dishes at the bottom of the menu, oh. chicken chips and peas and, you know, something else. Omelette. Yeah, you know, probably omelette chips and peas. <laughs> and you could tell they thought about, should we order something? And then they went... Chicken chips and peas, please, twice. <laughs> and I love that someone had actually come to an Indian restaurant and ordered the English stuff on it. What these books do is they say to you, do you want to try something from someone else's culture? Do you want to try something? You might like it. And it, this is part of a process of opening Britain's eyes to flavour, as it were, to other influences, to a, a, a movement that was going on when you talk about your, your mum doing sort of pebble mill dishes and things like that. And I get, she, you know, I still get emails from people who say, my dad learnt to cook from watching your mum's show and buying the recipe book. You know, there's often really interesting stories of like divorced parents or widowed fathers yeah. learning to cook in the 70s when, you know, it wasn't as, as yes. um, expected. And it was a big part of the development of, I think, of multicultural Britain was that, you know, English families embraced cooking Indian food at home. Yeah, and it, it was a way of doing it. It was something that, that seemed to be, certainly when I was growing up, it seemed to be something that was impossible to cook at home. My mum would make the basic coronation chicken, 50s curry with curry powder <laughs> with sliced egg and raisins. Raisin. The basic. My mum made that. And beyond that, you had to go to restaurants for that. There's the introduction of the idea that you could borrow from these cuisines and borrow ideas from it and actually cook at home. Well, not just borrow, you? make them authentically. I mean, the one other thing, going back to your point about books, cookbooks as books, you know, I have been trying for years to think about a way to get Len Dayton on um, front row. I think he's very, very elderly now. I don't know yeah. how good his health is. But of course, you know, people have for, repeatedly over the decades tried to introduce Britain to a wider cuisine and his action cookbook strip, oh, yes. you know, he did this action cookery in the Observer and the column. Cook. Courtney, I am going to cook you the best meal you've ever eaten. And, and his son, <laughs> I've only revived it with him quite recently. And you can, I've got the action cookbook. It actually has a gun with a sprig of parsley coming out on the cover. Because that of course he wrote be all better. the spy thrillers. So and it was his hands in the crestfall and all that doing the kind of, um, you know, with the mushrooms. cooking with the mushrooms. mushrooms. Yeah. You're paying tenpence more for a fancy French label. If you want button mushrooms, you'll get better value on the next shelf. It's not just the label. These do have a better flavour. Of course. You're quite a gourmet, aren't you, Palmer? Champignon. 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 Um, so, you know, there's, there is a great tradition, actually, in England of writers introducing or trying to introduce the British to the exotic tastes of garlic. Champignon. How to buy a really good joint of meat and knowing all the different parts of a cow. You know, like basic French cuisine. In is it because they travelled? Is it? Is it? Was yeah. it part of that? Is that part of the sort of the only way you're more likely to have travelled if you were, say, a travel writer or a journalist or something? You might have been elsewhere. Bringing this stuff back when travel became possible. You think about the whole James Bond books. I've not read many of them, but there's this whole obsession of his, isn't there, about fine tastes? He's a bit of a gourmand. There's an associated snobbery with snobbery, it. Snobbery, unfortunately, there's, too. There's yes. also this thing of saying he's seen more of the world than you have. The fantasy is you would know the finest restaurants if you travelled elsewhere. The odd thing about that is then then trying to align that to the idea that Britain is the finest country in the world. When obviously, if you travelled, you found out that other people can cook. It's a it's a it's a real shock. So when Lindon writes the action here. It's the Action Cookbook. It's called the Action Cookbook. The Action Cookbook. And it's basically all these um, strips 
from the Observer column in the 60s put into a book. That's amazing. So that was an attempt to sort of say to men, it's okay to cook a sort of bachelor thing in a way that, that it's almost against that sort of real men don't eat quiche kind of Yeah, and it wasn't, it wasn't about mystifying it. It was the opposite. It was saying, you can do this and you will eat better and you will live better. And, you know, you should want to, you know, know a good joint of meat and how simple it is to prepare a good steak. So there's something really refreshingly honest and the opposite of James Bond's snobbery about Len Dayton's approach to cooking. Hey, voila. Quiche. Steak happy day. Sounds interesting. Mmm. What is it? An omelette. <laughs> so what he's doing, which is very unusual to sort of put Sheila Ferguson and Len Dayton in the same bracket, but, but weirdly what we're talking about here is people who have written cookbooks and also books and it's again it's that association of writers and writing and the imaginative act of writing mm. with the imaginative act of cooking they somehow yeah. seem to be connected i'm not sure how have you no, got any idea that, that's well said and i think um crucially it's about demystifying so it's right. not about impressing people or saying this is alien to you it's it's welcoming you into a wider world right that's what i love about len dayton's um recipes, which is to say you can eat better and you'll be living a more sophisticated life, you know, without it being like you've got to reject what you already have. And with Sheila Ferguson, she just welcomed you into her home and her family. And I love the idea that she talks about the associations with cooking at funerals and things. So as we know, there's there's so many people who are lonely. And I think one of the big cultural differences I notice is cultures where everything is family-based, which has its downside too, as we know, you know, but the Irish, South Asian families, African-American families, and and, you know, you would never go to the home of a South Asian person and not get fed. It yeah. would be, and, and I remember growing up as a teenager and my mother just being appalled at the idea of, but you go to a party and there's no food? Yeah, you know, yeah. they just drink and there's crisps. You know, and I still <laughs> can't get my head round, if I'm really honest, going to parties where there is no food. Was that thing that came out recently where someone said, if you go to a Swedish family's house, they will eat in front of you and not offer you <gasps> any? Because there is a cultural difference. Different cultures have what a different attitude. And apparently all the Swedish people, someone will probably message the podcast and say, that's not true, but I heard it on Twitter. But the Swedes went, oh no, we wouldn't. We'd, we'd ask you to politely to wait while we finished our dinner. And you go, well, there are cultural differences. There are oh different God, ways of looking shocking. at it. I know, it's terrible. It's quite upsetting. Whereas in Asian families, you'd have secret code words of people suddenly arrive while you're eating. You'd work out how to make the food go further. <laughs> and there was a code word in our family about, you know, slow down your eating or you know, don't have seconds so that there's oh. enough left. I mean, it didn't happen often, but, you know, but people would turn up on New Year's Eve at our house, you know, <laughs> at, at 10 to midnight and go, surprise. And then you have to do the full thing. Yeah. You're fully entertaining. And I suppose what this is, you're saying this book is a family cookbook. It's about the importance of food to family, food to events, food as a, as a way of continuing family traditions. And all the way through this book, she's talking about cooking. There are photos of food, but there are mainly photos of people. And yeah. the food appears to be attached to those people. The family doesn't exist without food. Food is important. The origins at the beginning is this is something that kept us from starvation. And it's also how our family kept going. There's a continuation of a family line through passing recipes on, through passing food on, and through sharing food. They're totally connected. And it's a way of saying, this is my family. This is the food we eat. This is who we are. This is our culture. We'd like to meet us. Yeah, come on in. It's incredibly welcoming. It's a very, very gentle invitation, you know. And, oh, my God, I would so love to have been in her family. But then I suppose in a way you have, because she's, she's mm. packed that all down to a book, and so you can access that. That's, again, the magic of books. is someone can pack experience down to a form where you can unpack it at any time. And if, as you said, you can eat someone else's food and read this, because mm. it's not to do with it just being a manual. 
know. It's a magical act, isn't it? Mm. I hope everyone's feeling very hungry. It's going to go away and cook now. <laughs> well, maybe we should stop before our stomachs rumble and ruin the recording. But uh, thank you so much for bringing Sheila Ferguson Soul Food. My pleasure. Welcome to Mama Sugarbacks. Y'all ready to order? Yeah. I will have the baked beef short ribs with collard greens and throw down some of that cornbread. All right, babe. <clears throat> Y'all got ham hocks? Of course. Well, that's what I want. I want to play the ham hocks deep fried, blackened, and served on a bed of mustard greens. Pig feet. I want some pig feet and four pounds of grits. And, oh, oh, and, and you know what else? Give me a little Dixie cup full of lard. All right. I just remember what I want, a bowl of mosquitoes. None of them tiny ones either. Give me them big motherfuckers you find down at the swamp. Comfort Blanket was presented and produced by Joel Morris for the Cheese and Pickle family of podcasts. Find us on social media and don't forget to like and subscribe. <laughs>